Thank you for downloading and welcome. This podcast is intended for healthcare professionals and it brings you medical information about clinical guidelines by the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, or NICE, from a primary care perspective. My name is Fernando Florido and I am a GP in the United Kingdom. In this episode, I'm going to tell you about the NICE guidelines on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease in over 16-year-olds, diagnosis and management. This is the NG115 guideline. These guidelines were last updated in July 2019. NICE checked this guideline in January 2022 and it was decided that it did not need to be updated at that time. In this episode, I am going to summarize the main body of the guideline. You may be aware that many clinicians now rely on the management recommendations produced by the Global Initiative for Obstructive Lung Disease, also known as GOLD, which some say are more easily applied in practice than the NICE recommendations. The NICE recommendations do not contradict the GOLD report, but there are some who say that they are much more concise in their approach. Considering that the PDF document of this NICE guideline is 72 pages long, that is quite a statement. Stay tuned because I intend to create another episode in future on the GOLD guidelines. I have also uploaded YouTube videos on this subject and other NICE guidance. A link to access the YouTube channel can be found in the episode description. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording and all views and opinions are my own. I hope that you enjoy this episode. Right, so this guideline covers diagnosing and management chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or COPD, which includes emphysema and chronic bronchitis in people aged 16 and older. It aims to help people with COPD to receive a diagnosis earlier so that they can benefit from treatments to reduce symptoms, improve quality of life and keep them healthy for longer. NICE has produced a guideline on antimicrobial prescribing for acute exacerbations of COPD and a visual summary covering non-pharmacological management and use of inhaled therapies. I will put the links to these two in the episode description. The diagnosis of COPD is suspected on the basis of symptoms and signs and is supported by spirometry. In terms of symptoms, we will suspect the diagnosis of COPD in people over 35 who have a risk factor, generally smoking or history of smoking, and who present with one or more of the following symptoms. Exertional breathlessness, chronic cough, regular sputum production, frequent winter bronchitis always. One of the primary symptoms of COPD is breathlessness. The Medical Research Council, or MRC, dyspnea scale should be used to grade the breathlessness according to the level of exertion required to elicit it. I will put the link to this table in the episode description. The scale goes from 1 to 5, where 1 means minimal breathlessness and 5 disabling breathlessness. So, in the MRC dyspnea scale, grade 1 means that the person is not troubled by breathlessness except on strenuous exercise. Grade 2 means that the person is short of breath when hurrying or walking up a hill. Grade 3 is when the person walks slower than contemporaries on level ground because of breathlessness or has to stop for breath when walking at their own pace. 
Grade 4 is when the person needs to stop for breath after walking about 100 meters or after a few minutes on level ground. And grade 5 is when the person is too breathless to leave the house or is breathless when dressing or undressing. We need to perform spirometry at diagnosis to reconsider the diagnosis for people who show an exceptionally good response to treatment and to monitor disease progression. We will measure post-bronchodilator spirometry to confirm the diagnosis of COPD. An FEV1-FVC ratio below 0.7 is typical in COPD. We will also think about alternative diagnoses or investigations for older people who have FEV1-FVC ratio below 0.7 but do not have typical symptoms of COPD. And we will think about a diagnosis of COPD in younger people who have typical symptoms of COPD even if their FEV1-FVC ratio is above 0.7. We will consider primary care respiratory review and spirometry for people with emphysema or signs of chronic airway disease on chest X-ray or CT scan. If the person is a current smoker, their spirometry results are normal and they have no symptoms or signs of respiratory disease. We will offer smoking cessation advice and treatment. We will warn them that they are at higher risk of lung disease and we will advise them to return if they develop respiratory symptoms. So this is if the person is a smoker. However, if the person is not a current smoker, the spirometry is normal and they have no symptoms or signs of respiratory disease. We will ask them if they have a personal family history of lung or liver disease and consider alternative diagnoses such as alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. We will reassure them that their emphysema or chronic airway disease is unlikely to get worse, but we will advise them to return if they develop respiratory symptoms. For both situations, smokers and non-smokers, we need to be aware that the presence of emphysema on a CT scan is an independent risk factor for lung cancer. In terms of further investigations, in addition to spirometry, all patients should have a chest X-ray to exclude other pathologies, a full blood count to identify anemia or polycythemia, their body mass index or BMI calculated. So these three investigations should always be carried out, but we will perform additional investigations when needed, and these investigations will be serial home peak flow measurements to exclude asthma if diagnosis doubt remains, ECG, seronaturetic peptide and echocardiogram to assess cardiac status if cardiac disease or pulmonary hypertension are suspected, CT scan of the thorax to investigate symptoms that seem disproportionate to the spirometric impairment, to investigate signs that may suggest another lung diagnosis, such as fibrosis or bronchiectasis, or to investigate abnormalities seen on a chest X-ray. We will check zero-alpha-1 antitrypsin to assess for deficiency if there's early onset, minimal smoking history or family history. And transfactor for carbon monoxide or TLCO to investigate symptoms that seem disproportionate to the spirometric impairment. In terms of reversibility testing, we will say that for most people, routine spirometric reversibility testing is not necessary as part of the diagnosis.
It may be unhelpful or misleading because repeated FEV1 measurements can show small spontaneous fluctuations. The results of irreversibility tests performed on different occasions can be inconsistent and not reproducible. Over-reliance on a single reversibility test may be misleading unless the change in FEV1 is greater than 400 mils. And response to long-term therapy is not predicted by acute reversibility testing. Untreated COPD and asthma are frequently distinguishable on the basis of history and examination in people presenting for the first time. Whenever possible, we will use features from the history and examination to differentiate COPD from asthma. For example, being a smoker or an ex-smoker is a feature in almost all COPD patients, whereas it is only possible in asthma. Symptoms under the age of 35 are rare in COPD, whereas they appear often in asthma. Chronic productive cough is common in COPD, but uncommon in asthma. Breathlessness is persistent and progressive in COPD, whereas it is variable in asthma. Nighttime waking with breathlessness and or wheeze is uncommon in COPD, whereas it is common in asthma and significant daytime or day-to-day -day variability of symptoms is uncommon in COPD, whereas it is common in asthma. For more information on diagnosing asthma, you can refer to the NICE guideline on asthma, and I will put a link to this in the episode description. In addition to these features, we can use the regular observation of symptoms or spirometry or peak flow readings to help differentiate COPD from asthma. When diagnostic uncertainty remains, or we suspect that both COPD and asthma are present, we will use the following findings to help identify asthma. A response to broken dilators or to 30 mg oropranisolone daily for two weeks of over 400 ml in the FVV1, or serial peak flow measurements showing 20% or greater diurnal or day-to-day -day variability, or serial peak flow measurements showing 20% or greater day-to-day -day variability. In addition, we will conclude that clinical significant COPD is not present if the FEV1 and FEV1-FVC ratio return to normal with drug therapy, and we will reconsider the diagnosis of COPD for people who report a marked improvement in symptoms in response to inhaled therapy. If diagnostic uncertainty remains, we will think about referral for more detailed investigations, including imaging and measurement of transfer factor for carbon monoxide, or TLCR. For people for whom the FEV1-FVC ratio is below 0.7, we will classify the severity of airflow obstruction according to the reduction in the FEV1, and this is if the FEV1 is 80% or greater of predicted, it will be stage 1 or mild obstruction. If the FEV1 is between 50 and 79% of predicted, it will be stage 2 or moderate airflow obstruction. If the FEV1 is between 30 and 49% of predicted, it will be stage 3 or severe airflow obstruction. If the FEV1 is less than 30% of predicted, 
it will be stage 4 or very severe airflow obstruction. Stage 4 can also be FEV1 below 50% with respiratory failure. In trying to identify early disease, we should perform spirometry in people who are over 35, current or ex-smokers and have a chronic cough. We will consider spirometry in people with chronic bronchitis, given that a significant proportion of these people will go on to develop airflow limitation. We will refer patients for the following reasons. One, if there's diagnostic uncertainty and there is severe COPD or copulmonale in order to confirm the diagnosis and optimize the therapy. We will also refer for assessment for oxygen therapy, long-term nebulizer therapy or corticosteroid therapy in order to optimize the therapy and measure blood gases. If there's bullous lung disease for assessment of lung volume reduction procedures and for assessment for lung transplantation in order to identify candidates for intervention. We will also refer if there's a rapid decline in FEV1 and for pulmonary rehabilitation and if the symptoms are disproportionate to the lung function deficit or if there's the functional breathing. And this is in order to look for other explanations. Finally, we will refer if there is onset of symptoms under 40 years or a family history of alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency in order to identify these patients. If there are frequent infections, we will also refer in order to exclude bronchiectasis and if there is hemoptysis in order to exclude carcinomas of the bronchus. When it comes to managing stable COPD, NICE has produced a visual summary covering non-pharmacological management and use of inhaled therapies, and I will put a link to this in the episode description. This management includes smoking cessation, and for this we need to document an up-to-date smoking history, including pack years smoked, which is the number of cigarettes smoked per day, divided by 20 cigarettes in a pack, multiplied by the number of years smoked. At every opportunity, we will advise and encourage to stop and offer them help to do so. So unless contraindicated, we will offer nicotine replacement therapy, varanisicline or bupropion, as appropriate to people who want to stop smoking, combined with an appropriate support program. In terms of inhaled therapy, we will use short-acting bronchodilators as necessary as the initial empirical treatment to relieve breathlessness and exercise limitation. This can include short-acting beta-2 agonist or SABA and short-acting muscarinic antagonists or SAMA. If we are considering inhaled corticosteroids, we need to discuss with the person the risk of side effects, including pneumonia, of inhaled corticosteroids for COPD and we will not use oral corticosteroid reversibility tests to identify which people should be prescribed inhaled corticosteroids because they do not predict response to inhaled corticosteroid therapy. If we are considering inhaled combination therapy with long-acting muscarinic antagonists or LAMA, long-acting beta-2 agonists or LABA uninhaled corticosteroids, we will not assess the effectiveness of bronchodilator therapy using lung functions alone, 
but we will include a clinical improvement in symptoms. We will offer LAMA and LABA combination to COPD patients who are on a short-acting bronchodilator. If they do not have asthmatic features or features suggesting steroid responsiveness, such as previous diagnosis of asthma or of atopy, a higher blood eosinophil count, substantial variation if FEV1 over time and of at least 400 mils, a substantial variation in peak expiratory flow of at least 20%, and they remain breathless or have exacerbations despite existing management. We need to be aware of the MHRA safety advice on Respimat and hand inhaler inhalers, which basically refers to taking into account the risk of cardiovascular side effects for patients with conditions that may be affected by the anticholinergic action of teotropium, including MI, cardiac arrhythmia and heart failure. I will put a link to this advice in the episode description. We will consider a LABA and a corticosteroid combination for COPD patients who are on short-acting bronchodilators if they have asthmatic features or features suggesting steroid responsiveness and they remain breathless or have exacerbations despite existing management. For people with COPD who are taking a LABA and inhaled corticosteroid combination, we will offer triple therapy with a LAMA, LABA and inhaled corticosteroids if their day-to-day symptoms continue to adversely impact their quality of life or they have a severe exacerbation requiring hospitalization or they have two moderate exacerbations within a year. And this is because adding the LAMA has a beneficial effect on symptoms and exacerbations. For people with COPD who are taking a LAMA and LABA combination, we will consider triple therapy with a LAMA, LABA and inhaled corticosteroids if they have a severe exacerbation requiring hospitalization or they have two moderate exacerbations within a year. No mention of symptom control here, and this is because inhaled corticosteroids have significant impact on exacerbations, but not so much on symptoms. For people with COPD who are taking a LAMA-LABA combination and whose day-to-day symptoms adversely impact their quality of life, we will consider a trial of LAMA, LABA and inhaled corticosteroid lasting for three months only and then if the symptoms have not improved we will stop the inhaled corticosteroids and return to the LAMA, LABA combination. If symptoms have improved then we will continue with triple therapy. We will minimize the number of inhalers and the number of different types of inhaler used by each person as far as possible using combination inhalers if necessary. In terms of delivery systems used to treat stable COPD, we will say that in most cases bronchodilator therapy is best administered using a handheld inhaler, including spacer if appropriate, and we will only prescribe inhalers after people can demonstrate satisfactory inhaler technique. We will provide a spacer that is compatible with inhaler, advising that they should administer the drug by single actuations of the metered dose inhaler into the spacer, 
inhaling after each actuation and ensuring that there should be minimal delay between inhaler actuation and inhalation, being aware that normal tidal breathing can be used as it is as effective as single breaths. In respect of spacer cleaning, we will advise not to clean the spacer more than monthly because more frequent cleaning affects the performance because of build-up of static, and to hand wash using warm water and washing up liquid and allow the spacer to air dry. We will think about nebulizer therapy for people with distressing or disabling breathlessness despite maximal therapy using inhalers, and we will not continue it unless there is an objective or subjective improvement. We will offer people a choice between a face mask and a mouthpiece to administer the nebulizer therapy unless the drug specifically requires a mouthpiece, for example, anticholinergic drugs. In terms of oral therapy, we will first address oral corticosteroids. We will say that the long-term use of oral corticosteroid therapy in COPD is not normally recommended. Some people with advanced COPD may need long-term oral corticosteroids when these cannot be withdrawn following an exacerbation. In these cases, the dose of oral corticosteroids should be kept as low as possible. And we will monitor people who are having long-term oral corticosteroid therapy for osteoporosis and give them appropriate prophylaxis. Prophylaxis should be started without monitoring for people over 65. In respect of oral theophylline, we will say that slow-release theophylline should only be used after a trial of short-acting bronchodilators or for people who are unable to use inhaled therapy, as plasma levels and interactions need to be monitored. We will take particular caution when using theophylline in older people because of differences in pharmacokinetics, the increased likelihood of comorbidities, and the use of other medications. And we will reduce the dose of theophylline for people who are having an exacerbation if they are prescribed macrolide or fluoroquinolone antibiotics or other drugs known to interact. In respect of oral mucolytic therapy, we will consider it for people with a chronic cough productive sputum and we will only continue it if there is symptomatic improvement. However, we will not routinely use mucolytic drugs to prevent exacerbations in people with stable COPD. Oral antioxidant therapy, such as treatments with alpha-tocopherol and beta-carotene supplements, and oral antitussive therapies are not recommended. In respect of oral prophylactic antibiotic therapy, we will consider azithromycin, usually 250mg three times a week, for people with COPD, if they do not smoke and have optimized management and continue to have either frequent exacerbation with sputum production, typically four or more in a year, prolonged exacerbations with sputum production or exacerbations resulting in hospitalization. Before offering prophylactic antibiotics, we need to ensure that the person has had sputum culture and sensitivity, including tuberculosis culture, to identify other possible causes of persistent or recurrent infection that may need specific treatment. For example, antibiotic-resistant organisms, atypical mycobacteria or Pseudomonas aeruginosa.
Also, these patients need training in airway clearance techniques to optimize sputum clearance. And a CT scan of the thorax to rule out bronchiectasis and other lung pathologies. In addition, before starting azithromycin, we need to ensure the person has had an electrocardiogram or ECG to rule out prolonged QT interval and baseline liver function tests. When prescribing azithromycin, we will advise people about the small risk of hearing loss and tinnitus and tell them to contact a healthcare professional if this occurs. We will review prophylactic azithromycin after the first three months and then at least every six months. And we will only continue treatment if the continued benefit outweighs the risks. This is because there are no long-term studies on the use of prophylactic antibiotics in people with COPD. For people who are taking prophylactic azithromycin and are still at risk of exacerbations, we will provide a non-macrolide antibiotic to keep at home as part of their exacerbation action plan, telling the patient that it is not necessary to stop prophylactic azithromycin during an acute exacerbation of COPD. In terms of oral phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitors, we will say that for treating severe COPD with Roflumilast, there is separate NICE guidance which is really outside the scope of this podcast. However, if you are interested, I will put the link to this guidance in the episode description. We need to be aware that inappropriate oxygen therapy in people with COPD may cause respiratory depression. We need to assess the need for oxygen therapy in people with very severe airflow obstruction of FEV1 below 30% predicted, cyanosis, polycythemia, peripheral edema, raised jugular venous pressure, and oxygen saturations of 92% or less on air. And we will also consider it for people with severe airflow obstruction with an FEV1 between 30 and 49% of predicted. We will make the assessment by measuring arterial blood gases on two occasions at least three weeks apart, and we will consider long-term oxygen therapy for people who do not smoke and who have a partial pressure of oxygen in arterial blood below 7.3 kilopascals when stable, or have a partial pressure of oxygen in arterial blood between 7.3 and 8 kilopascals when stable, if they also have one or more of the following, a secondary polycythemia, peripheral edema, and or pulmonary hypertension. We will also conduct and document a structured risk assessment for people being assessed for long-term oxygen therapy. As part of the risk assessment, we will consider the risk of falls from tripping of the equipment and the risk of burns and fires and the increased risk of these for people who live in homes where somebody smokes, including e-cigarettes. For people who smoke or live with people who smoke, we will ensure the person who smokes is offered advice and support to stop. However, we will not offer long-term oxygen therapy to people who continue to smoke despite these efforts. We should advise people who are having long-term oxygen therapy that they should use it for a minimum of 15 hours per day. We will not offer long-term therapy to treat isolated nocturnal hypoxemia caused by COPD. Oxygen concentrators should be used to provide a fixed supply at home. 
and people on long-term oxygen therapy should be reviewed at least once a year. We will consider ambulatory oxygen in COPD if there is exercise desaturation and these are shown to improve with oxygen. We will also prescribe ambulatory oxygen to people who are already on long-term oxygen therapy who wish to continue oxygen therapy outside the home, but we will only prescribe it after an assessment by a specialist. The purpose of the assessment is to assess the extent of the desaturation, the improvement in exercise capacity with supplemental oxygen and the oxygen flow rate needed to correct desaturation. We will use small lightweight cylinders, oxygen conserving devices and portable liquid oxygen systems depending on the hours of ambulatory oxygen and oxygen flow rate needed. Finally, we will not offer short burst oxygen therapy to manage breathlessness in people with COPD who have mild or no hypoxemia at rest. In terms of managing pulmonary hypertension and core pulmonale, we will say that in this guideline core pulmonale is defined as a clinical condition that is identified and managed on the basis of clinical features. It includes people who have right heart failure secondary to lung disease and people whose primary pathology is salt and water retention leading to the development of peripheral edema. We will suspect the diagnosis core pulmonale for people with peripheral edema, a raised venous pressure, a systolic parasternal heave and a loud pulmonary secondary heart sound and it is recommended that the diagnosis of core pulmonale is made clinically. In respect to the treatment of pulmonary hypertension, we will not offer, solely for the management of pulmonary hypertension, any of the following treatments Lucentan, Losartan, Nifedipine, Nitric Oxide, Bentoxifilin, Phosphodiesterase 5 inhibitors and statins. So, in order to treat core pulmonale caused by COPD, we will ensure that patients are offered optimal COPD treatment, including stop smoking and oxygen therapy if there is hypoxia. Edema associated with core pulmonale can usually be controlled symptomatically with diuretic therapy. And we will not use any of the following to treat core pulmonale caused by COPD, and that is alpha blockers, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, calcium channel blockers or digoxin, unless there is atrial fibrillation. In terms of pulmonary rehabilitation, we will offer pulmonary rehabilitation to all people who view themselves as functionally disabled by COPD. Usually medical research counsel dyspnea scale grade 3 and above, including people who have had a recent hospitalization for an acute exacerbation. Pulmonary rehabilitation is not suitable for people who are unable to walk, who have unstable angina, or who have had a recent myocardial infarction. The rehabilitation process should incorporate a program of physical training, disease education, and nutritional, psychological, and behavioral intervention. In respect of vaccination and antiviral therapy, we will offer pneumococcal vaccination and an annual flu vaccination to all people with COPD. There is separate guidance on preventing and treating flu using antivirals, and I will put the links to this guidance in the episode description. 
There's a whole section on lung surgery and lung volume reduction procedures, but being such a specialized area, I will not say much about these, only that it applies only to the most severe forms of COPD, that it can involve lung volume reduction surgery, bullectomy, endobronchial valves and coils, and lung transplantation, and that careful investigations including imaging of the lungs will be required for these. I will put links to this specific guidance in the episode description. We will also say that alpha-1 antitrypsin replacement therapy is not recommended in alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. COPD care should be delivered by a multidisciplinary team including respiratory nurse specialists, physiotherapy, people helping to identify and manage anxiety and depression, nutritionists, palliative care for people with end-stage COPD, assessment for occupational therapy, and social services, especially if they have disabilities caused by COPD. In terms of advice on travel for people on long-term oxygen therapy, we will follow the recommendations by the British Thoracic Society, and I will put a link to these recommendations in the episode description. Scuba diving is not generally recommended for people with COPD. We must obviously offer patient education about their condition and how COPD will affect other long-term conditions that are common in people with COPD, for example, hypertension, heart disease, anxiety, depression, and musculoskeletal problems. Programs designed for asthma should not be used in COPD. In terms of self-management, we need to develop an individualized self-management plan in collaboration with each person with COPD and their family members or carers, including an individualized exacerbation action plan. We will also offer a short course of oral corticosteroids and a short course of oral antibiotics to keep at home as part of their exacerbation action plan if they have had an exacerbation within the last year and remain at risk of exacerbations, they understand and are confident about when and how to take these medicines and the associated benefits and harms, and they know to tell their healthcare professionals when they have used their medicines and to ask for replacements. There's separate nice guidance on the choice of antibiotics, and I will put the link to this in the episode description. In summary, the choice of antibiotics will be as first line, amoxicillin, doxycycline or clarithromycin. As second line, if the first line antibiotic has failed, we will use an alternative first choice, preferably from a different class. Finally, an alternative choice antibiotic for people at higher risk of treatment failure would be quamoxiclav, cotrimoxazole and levofloxacin. For people who have used three or more courses of oral corticosteroids and or oral antibiotics in the last year, we should investigate the possible reasons for this. There's also separate guidance on the recommendations on systemic corticosteroids and the link will be also in the episode description. We will encourage people with COPD to respond promptly to exacerbation symptoms by following their action plan which may include adjusting their short-acting bronchodilator therapy to treat their symptoms, 
taking short course of oral corticosteroids if their increased breathlessness interfere with activities of daily living, adding oral antibiotics if the sputum changes color and increases in volume or thickness beyond the normal day-to-day variation, and telling their healthcare professional. We should not offer routine telehealth monitoring of physiological status as part of management for stable COPD. When it comes to the following up of people with COPD, apart from offering the usual advice and treatment, we will record the opportunistic measurements of spirometric parameters, and if there is a loss of 500 mils or more over 5 years, this will show rapidly progressing disease and may need referral to specialist treatment and investigation. We will review people with mild severe COPD, stages 1 to 3, at least once a year, and those with very severe COPD or stage 4 should be seen at least twice a year in primary care. A review should include smoking status and advice, symptoms and complications including corpulmonale, response to treatment including inhaler technique, pulmonary rehabilitation and long-term oxygen therapy, measurement of FEV1 and FVC, BMI, and the MRC dyspnea score. We should also check oxygen saturation in patients with very severe COPD. In terms of managing exacerbations of COPD, we will define an exacerbation as a sustained worsening of the patient's symptoms, which is beyond normal day-to-day variations. The change in the symptoms often necessitates a change in medication. A mild exacerbation requires increasing the medication in their own normal environment. A moderate exacerbation requires treatment with systemic corticosteroids and or antibiotics. And a severe exacerbation requires hospitalization. We will assess the need for hospital treatment according to the patient's symptoms and social circumstances, as well as subjective measurements. In particular, significant changes on a chest X-ray and an oxygen saturation of less than 90% is likely to indicate the need for hospital treatment, as well as arterial blood gases showing a pH less than 7.35, or if the partial pressure of oxygen in the arterial blood is less than 7 kPa. Sending sputum samples for culture is not recommended routinely for people who have their exacerbation managed in primary care, but pulse oximetry can be of value. However, people referred to hospital should have a chest X-ray, arterial blood gases, an ECG, a full blood count and urea and electrolytes, a theophylline level for people taking theophylline, a sputum culture if the sputum is purulent, and blood cultures if there is a fever. Hospital at home and assisted discharge schemes are safe and can also be used as an alternative. We're now going to review the pharmacological management during exacerbations. We can use both nebulizers and inhalers, but we will change people to inhalers as soon as their condition has stabilized, because this may allow them to be discharged from hospital earlier. If a person with COPD is hypercapnic, or acidotic, the nebulizer should be driven by compressed air rather than oxygen to avoid worsening hypercapnia. If oxygen therapy is needed, 
which it administrates simultaneously by nasal cannulae. In the absence of clinical contraindications, we will give oral corticosteroids to people having an exacerbation, offering 30 mg of oral prednisolone daily for 5 days, and we will think about osteoporosis prophylaxis for people who need frequent courses of oral corticosteroids. For guidance on using antibiotics to treat COPD exacerbations, there is separate guidance and I will put the link in the episode description. It is basically amoxicillin, doxycycline or clarithromycin as first line. A second line, if the first line antibiotic has failed, we will use an alternative first choice, preferably from a different class. An alternative choice, oral antibiotics, if the person is at high risk of treatment failure, would be comoxiclav, cotrimoxazole and levofloxacin. We will only use intravenous theophylline with careful monitoring as an adjunct to exacerbation management if there is inadequate response to nebulized bronchodilators. Respiratory stimulants such as doxapram should be used only when non-invasive ventilation is either unavailable or inappropriate. We will measure oxygen saturation if there are no facilities to measure arterial blood gases and if necessary prescribe oxygen to keep the oxygen saturation of arterial blood within the individualized target range. Pass oximetry gives no information about the partial pressure of CO2 in arterial blood or pH, so we will measure arterial blood gases in all people who arrive at hospital with an exacerbation of COPD. We will use non-invasive ventilation as a treatment of choice for persistent hypercapnic ventilatory failure during exacerbations despite medical therapy. We will treat hospitalized exacerbations of COPD on intensive care units, including invasive ventilation when this is thought to be necessary. We will also consider physiotherapy using positive expiratory pressure devices for selected people with exacerbation of COPD to help with clearing sputum. Finally, in order to monitor the recovery from an exacerbation, we will do regular clinical assessments, use pulse oximetry, and for people who are hypercapnic or acidotic, we will measure intermittent arterial blood gases until they're stable. We will not, however, routinely perform daily monitoring of peak expiratory flow, or FEV1s, because the magnitude of changes is small compared with the variability of the measurement. We have come to the end of this episode. I hope that you have enjoyed it and I hope that you will join me in the next one. Thank you and goodbye.